Okay, so welcome to another episode of Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. I'm going to be an incoming freshman at UCLA next year, and I'm also the youngest Biden delegate here in Illinois. Jill, um, Ellie and I know a lot about you, but can you give our audience an, a brief introduction about who you are? Sure, but first I want to say that this is my first opportunity to have chatted with Ellie, and I know that today's episode is going to be really fun mm -hmm. and a terrific conversation. Definitely. I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I'm also a Biden delegate, but also an MSNBC uh, legal analyst, um, not the other network, which we're <laughs> proud to have Ellie from CNN with us today. Um, I also am the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope you will, will all read. Uh, that's based on my experience as the only woman during the Watergate trial as one of the three trial lawyers for the Watergate special prosecutor. Um, also, I've been Deputy Attorney General of Illinois and uh, General Counsel of the U.S. Army and had a lot of other wonderful, exciting experiences in the long career that I've had. So back to you, Victor. Yeah, so I mean, as always, we want to thank you for listening to inter Intergenerational Politics. Today, we could not be more excited to be talking with our special guest, Ellie Honig, about Bill Barr, the state of the DOJ, Department of Justice, and of course, how all of this is relevant to every generation tuning in. So Ellie Honig is a CNN legal analyst who previously worked for 14 years as a federal and state prosecutor. Ellie provides commentary and analysis for CNN on breaking news relating to criminal justice and other legal issues, including a weekly column, an on-air on segment, which you should all watch, called Cross-Exam with Ellie Honig. In addition, Ellie worked from 2004 until 2012 as an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, prosecuting and trying federal cases involving organized crime, human trafficking, and public corruption. Ellie is also the executive director of the Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities and special counsel to the law firm Lowenstein Sandler. Ellie graduated from Rutgers College in 1997, as well as Harvard Law School in 2000. Thank you so much, Ellie, for being here. And if I understand correctly, you have something to do with delegate counting and with Jill and I being delegates. Um, like, do you want to share a little bit about your experience? And um, then I'll let Jill kick off the conversation today. I do. So first of all, let me say thank you for having me. This is such a great idea that you guys are doing. I really admire both of you. Victor, um, you're so put together, you you scare me a little bit because my son is 14. And I'm thinking in four years, would my son be able to do this? I don't know. Um, but it's good to meet you. And Jill, uh, you're, you're really a role model for so many. That was driven home to me when my mom saw that I was going to be doing this and said, you have to understand how much Jill Winebanks meant to people, especially young women um, at the time, because not only was she this female prosecutor, but she was operating and succeeding in a world dominated by men, and this is in the 70s. So uh, it's an honor to be on with you as well. Um, here's my delegate story, and, and I'm not a delegate, I'm not political at, at this point in my life, but when I was in college, a little older than you, young Victor, um, <laughs> I spent the summer of 1996 working for the Democratic National Committee. Mm -hmm. And we were getting ready for the convention there. It was going to be Bill Clinton against Bob Dole. The convention was in Chicago, actually, oh, wow. that year. Yeah. And so one of my jobs was doing a lot of this sort of ministerial delegate counting. Well, late that summer, we would occasionally, as the DNC interns, get an invitation over to the White House. We were the mm -hmm. B team. The A team was the White House interns. The B mm -hmm. team was us DNC interns. And so if they needed people if a foreign head of state was arriving at a base and they needed people to wave flags mm -hmm. or stand on the rope line, we would get the call, but it was hugely exciting. And yeah. this is before cell phones really. So you would just have to be there. I actually missed the first opportunity because I was in the DNC basement going through files and I came up and everybody was gone. I said, where's everybody? They, said, they got whisked over to the White House. Fast forward, end of the summer one day we're told they're having a surprise birthday party for Bill Clinton's, I want to say 49th birthday. Someone can do the math on that, but something like that at the White House. And so we got to go over there. And it was a Western theme because the Clintons were about to go on vacation in, in mm -hmm. Wyoming, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And Jimmy Buffett played the, I don't know, Victor, if you know who he is, but <laughs> yeah. Jill, you know who I he is. do. <laughs> yeah, so Jimmy Buffett played. It was on the South Lawn of the White House, and, and Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Tipper Gore and Al Gore mm -hmm. were all there. And it was not a big gathering. It was maybe the size of a large wedding, I don't know, 200 to 250 mm -hmm. people. And Bill Clinton started working his way down the rope line. He's wearing a very distinctive pink, like like pink 
button short sleeve shirt and, and jeans and a cowboy belt and boots consistent with the theme. And as he's coming around, I hand my camera, we had disposable cameras, to a coworker of mine, I said, get a picture. And she got this great picture of half the frame is me, shaped like looking awestruck, and half the <laughs> frame is Bill Clinton in that distinct pink shirt, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, it was a memorable moment. Now, fast forward a couple of years, and um, I'm now watching a special, a retrospective on the impeachment of Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky affair. Mm -hmm. And the show opens with Bill first met Monica Lewinsky at his 49th birthday party on the White House. Oh. And they cut to a photo that is the exact same as the photo of me, only instead of me standing there, it's the famous photo of Bill shaking hands with Monica. Oh my body language is a little different. He's like more interested in her than he is in me. If you look at the photos. Uh, back to back, but I always think it's like my Forrest Gump moment. I was right there when an unfortunate wow. part of history started. So wow. Anyway, maybe you'll have a similar experience, Victor. Who knows <laughs> yeah, we will things. see. Yeah. I have a feeling that Victor will definitely be having many of those experiences in his <laughs> yeah. career. I yeah. predict a long and successful political career for Victor. <laughs> I can see. So, it. but back to the subject of today, yeah. <laughs> uh, we really want to use your expertise both as a legal analyst and um, even more because of your experience in the Southern District and your experience with maybe with Bill Barr, um, because we're really concerned about what's going on. And so we wanna sort of set the stage a little bit because this has been quite an experience over the last, I don't know, month, two months, uh, where although we were fully warned by the audition memo that he did, what we might expect when he became attorney general, it's really escalated and become worse. Um, we, we may be even at a turning point. Um, his ordering troops to push back the peaceful protesters using tear gas. Why he was even involved in that is sort of a mystery to me. Um, using it for a photo op, a political photo op, uh, and walking with Donald Trump to that photo op. Uh, we've heard just recently, a lot of congressional testimony by former members of the Department of Justice and by current members of the Department of Justice about his political pressure to get outcomes that he wanted, about selecting targets in antitrust cases for industries he didn't like, uh, about the Stone, Roger Stone sentencing being uh, lowered because obviously Stone is a friend of the president. Um, I would say he's also trying to possibly, uh, and I want your opinion on this later, uh, obstruct justice by the Flynn dismissal. Maybe he's trying to keep Flynn quiet, relating back to the Watergate era when hush money was paid. This may be a way of keeping uh, Flynn from saying what he knows about the president's involvement in, in a variety of things. Um, we saw the Department of Justice filing a brief to overturn Obamacare, the ACA. Uh, you, know, you have the president saying, I'll protect pre-existing conditions. And then you have the Department of Justice filing a brief saying, no, let's get rid of the entire thing. Um, so we had the warning about the unitary executive authoritarian powers of the president, but he got confirmed anyway. He then went on to misstate the findings of the Mueller report saying there was no obstruction, no collusion. And then when we actually saw the report, we knew that that wasn't true. And um, what I wanna do is ask Victor to sort of start with some very specific things, you know, like what's bothering you, Victor, about what's going on? What does your generation wanna know about what this means to justice and democracy? So Victor, why don't you ask the first question? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there's so much to be bothered about with Bill Barr, but I think for my generation, the most recent was that, you know, Bill Barr nearly a month ago um, took to the streets um, in D.C. To, for this photo op with Donald Trump and pushed a completely peaceful demonstration of protesters, um, you know, protesting the persistent racism and the death of George Floyd and other black lives. And um, I thought, I, so I was angry during the time and really distraught by Barr's bizarre and strange actions. So I mean, I guess my first question for Ellie is, like, is this an example of partisanship? And is it normal for someone heading the DOJ to make these grotesque orders? And if not for our younger generation out there listening today, um, can you kind of explain what's going on in the DOJ and why the RNC 
And Republicans in Congress are allowing this level of partisanship to occur from the attorney general. Yeah, so it's a good question. Victor, the first thing I want to make sure you and specifically people in your generation understand is this is not normal. Okay, there's nothing normal about what Bill Barr is doing. There, there are good, great attorney generals. There are mediocre attorney generals. There have been, I suppose, poor attorney generals. He's not even on that spectrum, okay? <laughs> He's on a different scale. He's different in kind, not in degree, okay? And just to, to bear on my own experience, I spent eight and a half years at DOJ it was almost exactly four years under the George W. Bush Republican administration and four years under the Barack Obama administration. Four attorneys general, three Republicans, Ashcroft, Gonzalez, and Mukasey, and then one Democrat, Eric Holder. And I've never seen anything remotely like this. And let me, t let me tell you what I mean. You can disagree with an attorney general's policy agenda, okay? That's what I think people mean, and it's a fair point when they say elections have consequences. For example, when I was at the Southern District of New York, early on, John Ashcroft came around doing his tour that AGs will do when he spoke to us as an office. And he said, one of our big priorities is going to be enforcing obscenity cases. Obscenity, okay? I don't even know exactly what, like bad words or something. And to say that to a group of SDNY prosecutors who, who are doing terrorism cases a mile away from the World Trade Center, a half mile away from Wall Street, doing financial cases, doing mob cases, it became a joke in the office. We used to, people would send emails going, I hear by point Victor Xi as the, uh, as the chief of the obscenities unit. <laughs> we, we didn't agree, I didn't agree with that particular policy priority. We never did any cases on it, but I never once questioned or doubted whether it was Ashcroft, Gonzalez, Mukasey or Eric Holder, their independence that fundamentally they would do the right thing and they wouldn't bend the law or, or morality or ethics to protect the president. And I never doubted any of their credibility. Are they telling the truth? Are they lying to the public? And those are the two things. If you want to isolate why Bill Barr has been so damaging to DOJ and to the country, it's those two things. Independence. Every single major step Bill Barr has taken, and Jill laid them out in the beginning, has miraculously been exactly what Donald Trump would have wanted. And Bill Barr said in some interview the other day, there's no pattern. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's Orwellian. I mean, we can all see there's a pattern. Yeah. Um, and the other part of that is his credibility. I mean, for an AG to get caught lying to the public over and over. And by the way, don't just take it from me or, or Jill. Here's a couple other people who have said that Bill Barr lied to the public. Robert Mueller, okay, about as, as mild-mannered, um, and sort of reserved a, a DC lifer as can be, wrote a letter to Bill Barr saying, you've misstated the, the, the facts and conclusion and work of this office, which is mm -hmm. coming from Robert Mueller, people have to understand, that's what you kids would call putting someone on blast. <laughs> I mean, that is a major step, I think, I'm probably a couple years out of date. And a federal judge in DC ruled that Bill Barr had twisted the truth in order to wonder aloud whether it was to assist the president in the way he presented the Mueller report. And by the way, Bill Barr just got caught cold in a lie a couple weeks ago when he came out and said, Jeffrey Berman, the SDNY U.S. attorney, he'll be stepping down. And then about an hour later, and I stood up and applauded, Jeffrey Berman said, oh, no, I'm not. So, I mean, why would he lie like that? So the damage he's doing is really deep and foundational here. And that said, though, I, DOJ will survive. DOJ will always survive. And for every, as much as it's got to be dispiriting and bad for DOJ's public confidence to have someone do, do what Bill Barr is doing. As Jill knows, there are thousands upon thousands of, of men and women who go in every day and do their jobs in a non-political, fair way. And they'll continue to do their jobs. And it's been interesting, as you mentioned, Victor, to see some of these folks speaking up, even in Congress. I mean, what a moment when Aaron Zelinsky, a line prosecutor. I don't know if I'd have had the guts to do that, but uh, when I was in his position, but to stand up and say this case was manipulated because Roger Stone is politically connected to the president. That was a, a an oh my God moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we have so much to talk about. And um, I'll let Jill do the next topic, but obviously his actions are reckless and um, we'll get into that later today. So Jill, I'll hand it out back to, back to you. Well, you know, this does reflect back. Um, I, I, I'm listening to you, Ellie, and saying, gee, this is what happened during the Nixon administration. And I uh, actually was hired and started literally the month before Nixon was inaugurated. So the 
longest part of my tenure was under the Republicans and under uh, John Mitchell as the attorney general who ended up going to jail, uh, something I maybe hope will happen here as we watch these things happening. And for some of the same reasons, it was because they were targeting specific people and not doing this in the way that we were told as part of the Department of Justice, which is, you know, without fear or favor, you go after whoever is guilty and you don't go after people because the president has them on, as Nixon did, their enemies list. So that's, you know, there is a similarity here. It's, it's really bad. Um, and this testimony was really quite shocking. Um, Zelensky, and then watching the Republicans in Congress attack him for not being there because he was worried about COVID and had a newborn baby. Uh, that's about as low as I think you can go. Ridiculous, because he was there. He was ready to answer questions. He was just as available being there by Zoom as he would have been if he had been sitting in front of them. They could see him. This wasn't an audio. Uh, anyway, um, the, the political pressure was talked about with Stone. I think the same thing happened excuse me, with Flynn and the dismissal. And I'd like you to sort of maybe go into a little more on your views about whether there is any obstruction possible there, um, whether they were both done to protect the president. And more importantly, to both of them are undoing the work of Mueller. And so address the question of, if you have a special prosecutor and he's appointed because the Department of Justice has a conflict, and then the conflict is resolved by indictments. And then the Department of Justice says, okay, but we're going to dismiss those cases or we're going to make sure that the sentence is a lot less than is recommended. Does that um, basically eviscerate the whole point of having a special prosecutor? So yeah. let, let's start with that. Yeah, so my view on both the Flynn and the Roger Stone cases and Bill Barr's involvement is that Barr's involvement was corrupt and was political. And I don't know that it constitutes criminal obstruction. There's a big if there that we'll, we'll get to at the end. But I don't think there's any question, and I think it's obvious that the reason Bill Barr focused on these two cases is because not only are they both political friends and allies of the president, the president's openly tweeting about these two cases. And yes, I do think Bill Barr's trying to undo Robert Mueller's investigation. And by the way, we knew there's a famous quote of, a, of an NFL coach a couple years ago where his team got beat. I think, it's, I think it had to do with the Bears. Um, and he goes, they were who we thought they were. I mean, Bill Barr is who he told us yeah. he was with that yeah. memo. I mean, the fact that, and I wrote a piece about this for CNN at the time. He wrote a memo before he got the job saying the biggest case in DOJ's entire docket, the Mueller case, I think is fatally flawed. And in a separate interview, he said, public interview before he got the job, Barr said that Mueller's theory was, quote, asinine. Right. Okay, we're going to take this guy who has already prejudged the most important case he will ever deal with and said it's, 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 a, it's a dead case and we're going to put him in? Okay, sure enough, he's now delivering and he's doing it piece by piece. Flynn Stone. The one thing that I want people, to, and there was a story just the other day that broke that he tried to get the Southern District to undo a piece of the Michael Cohen case, the case right. that harmed the president, the payment of hush money. Uh, uh, but here's something I want people to understand. As Attorney General, Bill Barr has the ability to kill cases, to sidetrack cases in a much less dramatic Hollywood style manner than I think people may understand, right? I mean, there's this notion of he's gonna show up in a caravan of, of tinted window cars at, at the SDNY and march in and grab those files and tape them up and walk them out of here. I mean, that's not the way it happens. All it takes is a little bit of shady, a couple of the shaky case law citations and drawing these sort of myopic conclusions. Eh, I don't quite see it. And that's it. And that's what he's done. For example, in the Mueller report, the Mueller report is a Bible of obstruction of justice. It goes on and on. I don't, Jill, I don't know if you, but I was one of the thousand plus prosecutors that signed yes. the letter saying, yeah, saying this is, this is plainly obstruction of justice made out in the Mueller report. What does Bill Barr do? He just writes his report. He says, after reviewing the evidence, I find no obstruction. And when he was, when he was asked about that, really the only thing he ever said was, well, the president was angered. Okay. 
who cares? Not, not, I mean, that's why people obstruct justice. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, and there's no underlying crime proof, but I mean, that's not the law. Martha Stewart, Scooter Libby, Roger Stone, all convicted of obstruction crimes without an underlying crime. But he just kind of says, eh, I don't see it. And I'm the AG. And he did the same thing with Michael Flynn. If you look at the the memo, the ridiculous memo that DOJ put in asking to undo Michael Flynn's guilty plea, two guilty pleas, it's just this mess of misstated cases and very short-sighted, like, you know, tunnel vision views on the facts to conclude that Michael Flynn really didn't, I mean, he, of course he lied to the FBI. There's no real question. And he does the same thing with the Stone case. So it can be as non-dramatic as Barr just saying, I'm the AG. We disagree. Uh, you know, I'm higher on the org chart than you. Sorry. But he's done it when he does it time and time again in such a dishonest, disingenuous way. I don't think you can ignore the pattern there. I don't think anyone will tell you with a straight face that Bill Barr is acting purely out of doing the right thing and calling it right down the middle. And it just so happens that every single call is going this one way. So is there a way to hold him accountable now or in the future? Is yeah. impeachment, is disbarment, is indictment? What, what right. do you think the possibilities are for what seems to be in our face activities that are not normal for an attorney general? Yeah, so there are options, various options that I'll run through them, but I'll tell you, none of them are particularly satisfying or realistic right? The only one that's going to get Barr out of there is an election. And I'm not, I'm not vouching, you know, I'm not doing a political ad here, but the only way that Bill Barr, Bill Barr's tenure ends is if, is with this election. What are some other things? Okay. Impeachment. Can an AG be impeached? Sure. There's no real constitutional question about that. Are they going to impeach him now at this late stage? No. I mean, Nadler said he should, Nadler said a couple weeks ago, I can, and he deserves it, but I won't. And then he said, I might. And then Pelosi said, no, you won't. They're not going to impeach him. Let's be realistic. And even if they did, the Senate would, would throw it out. But impeachment is an available remedy. Um, look, there are, there's not a heck of a lot one can do to stop an attorney general. I mean, Congress has a big role to play here in demanding accountability. By and large, I think Jerry Nadler has failed at that responsibility. I think Jerry Nadler, he's had moments including getting Aaron Zelinsky to testify a couple weeks ago. But by and large, Nadler has been steamrolled by, by, by William Barr. Um, go back to the Mueller report, right? I mean, when, when Nadler started issuing subpoenas for everybody, Bill Barr just threw him in the garbage. Bill Barr no-showed. He testified in the Senate on one day, and then he said to the House, eh, don't feel like showing up. He is withholding the grand jury materials. He is blocking subpoenas to everybody. And really all Nadler has ever done is on a very slow schedule, go to court on Don McGahn. And it took Jerry Nadler four months to even go to court and he's still in court. And I think what Jerry Nadler needed to do was immediately upon issuance of the Mueller report, issue subpoenas, give a short deadline and say, okay, Bill Barr, okay, Hope Hicks, okay, according to Lewandowski ended up yeah. testifying, but that was a, that was a farce. Okay, all these John Bolton, Roger, whoever we need to hear from, you're coming in next week. And if you're not in, I'm going to court the next day. Mm -hmm. And now Nadler's people will, will say, oh, but the courts are inherently slow. And what can we do? The answer is do your job. Go in there and convince a court that you need this. You need this urgently. You need this expedited. Because I'll, I'll tell you something. People think there's some magic to this. Like, well, courts are bogged down. Courts are human beings. Judges are human beings. They can get cases going. Joe can tell, look. Look at the Nixon stuff. I mean, courts can hear cases and decide them in a matter of days or weeks. Look at Nixon, Bush versus Gore. That got up and down in days. Even just the other day, the Roger Stone controversy about his, uh, excuse me, the um, John Bolton controversy about his book. Court heard that and decided that in, in right. less than a week. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and Joe, you can talk about this from, from the Nixon perspective, the Watergate perspective, but courts can and do rule really quickly. And I think Nadler has failed to convince courts that this is so urgent that they needed to rule quickly. And as a result, Bill Barr is steamrolled. I, I've been saying this for a long time because yeah. if you look at just, for example, we issued a trial subpoena for 64 additional tapes after the 
first round of tapes. In April, in July, the Supreme Court ruled. They stayed in session. I mean, normally they would have been on summer recess. They stayed in session to hear the argument and they ruled immediately. And within weeks, Nixon was out of office because of it. So there is no excuse. Things can be expedited. The fact that we're still waiting for McGahn for a decision is ridiculous. And this, it seems to me that the precedent is certainly in favor of his ultimately being ordered to testify. There is no legitimate reason for him not to testify, but that's a whole different yeah. subject. Whole yeah, different I, subject. I, I completely agree that I think McGahn is going to be ordered to testify. By the time this finally runs its course, it's going to be next Congress already. I mean, right. who knows if they'll even, it, it would almost be silly at a certain point to, to put on McGahn's testimony. Although on the other hand, the American people do need to hear it. But um, yeah, so look, I think Nadler has, has held, holds a crucial oversight position as chair of the Judiciary Committee, and I, and I think he's, for the most part, failed in that position. Beyond that, how else can we hold Bill Barr accountable? Um, the media has a big role to play here, and look, I'm part of the media now, I suppose, um, but, but the media has shined, I think, a very important light on this and has brought a lot of attention to it. Bill Barr, frankly, seems like he doesn't give a damn. And he seems like he almost enjoys it. He almost sort of, you know, um, I mean, I thought it was almost uh, comedic how he pushed off, pushed off Nather, ignored his subpoenas, ignored his subpoenas, finally agreed, okay, Jerry Nather, I, Bill Barr, will grace you with my presence about a month from now. How about July 28th? And Nadler took it, and if that's the best you can do. What does Bill Barr do the very next day? He sits down for a little podcast with Ted Cruz. He's got plenty of time to sit and chat with Ted Cruz but not to talk to the Congress and the American people. Um, so I don't think Nadler has done a great job in that respect. But what else can be done? Look, I think, I think Bill Barr, his own historical legacy um, will reflect what he's done. And I think, the, the tr- I think even, even a partisan, I think, has to acknowledge that he has used the DOJ in a much more political manner. Now, Joe, you talked about the possibility of obstruction of justice. I do believe that the attorney general and the president are capable of, legally capable of obstructing justice if they take steps that are designed to stop somebody from testifying or cooperating. And Mueller went down this road with the president. I mean, Mueller made a pretty convincing argument. I wish he would have stated his conclusions more clearly. He chose not to, that's his fault. But he made a pretty compelling factual case that what was really going on, in particular with Stone, Cohen, and Manafort was the president was trying to, on the one hand, intimidate them. At one point, he called one of them a rat, which is a grotesque term that mob guys use. I did mob cases. But also to entice them, to dangle the possibility of pardons for these guys. And he's still doing it to prevent them from cooperating. And by the way, there's an untold piece of the Michael Flynn story here that people need to keep in mind. He pled guilty as a cooperator with Mueller. And Many months in, Mueller put in a letter to the court saying, standard letter saying, hey, judge, we'd like to postpone his sentencing. That's, Victor, that's what prosecutors do when you have someone who's still in the process of cooperating. And in that letter, Mueller said he is providing very valuable cooperation on multiple investigations. At some point, for some reason, we don't know the answer to this. Someone's going to find this out someday. Maybe Jeffrey Tubin, he's writing a book right now. Michael Flynn went bad as a cooperator. And we've all had cooperators go bad on us. We caught them in a lie. They decided they got cold feet. They got scared. Something happened that made Michael Flynn either lie or decide, I don't want this anymore. And he stopped cooperating. And now what's happened? He's been rescued, right? Trump's been lobbying by Twitter for him to be bailed out. And Bill Barr, on, right on cue, Bill Barr delivers. So I want to know what happened there. I mean, if I'm a prosecutor looking at this case, and it's, let's say it's not the AG, let's say it's a mob boss. That's the case I did. And I had someone who was in the midst of cooperating and I had a tape of the boss saying he's gonna get in trouble if he cooperates. I'd wanna try to see if I could tie those two things together. Right. You need that tie. And, and in the absence of it, we'll, we'll be left to speculate. But I don't have any real doubt in my mind that one of the president's primary motivations in all that he's done is to, is to keep Stone, Manafort, Cohen, and, and, and Flynn Quiet. By the way, of all those guys, they all flaked out or decided either Manafort cooperated and flaked out too. Same yeah. thing happened with Flynn. Stone never came in and Cohen tried to cooperate, but the SDNY wasn't interested because he wasn't willing to tell them everything. So that's a suspicious pattern. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess on the point of like holding Bill Barr accountable, I guess on a more hopeful note, um, Republicans in the Senate recently took a step to finally hold Bill Barr accountable for his actions by moving to expand the DOJ's independent yeah. watchdog um, so that it can investigate some of those misconducts and wrongdoings of um, DOJ lawyers and also Bill Barr. So I guess, can you kind of discuss the significance of independent watchdogs for um, us young folks out there and what role they have in the DOJ? Yeah, so every federal agency has an inspector general. And the point is to be sort of a, an in-house guardian to protect against waste, fraud, and abuse. And presidents do have the right and often do replace IGs, but sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I mean, right now, even with President Trump getting rid of four or five major IGs in the last couple months, we have IGs right now who are appointed under Obama, under Bush, and by the way, great trivia question. There's actually an IG, I want to say of the Railroad Taxation Commission, wow. who was appointed in 1994 by Bill Clinton. Hmm. Um, and he's still there. So if Trump doesn't fire him next week or something. Um, but this is supposed to be a non-political position. Um, and, and the IG um, takes complaints from internal or external of waste, fraud, and abuse. And if an IG sees something that's potentially a crime, he can refer it for potential prosecution. But IGs do play an important role. We've learned a lot of important things from IGs. I mean, Michael Atkinson, the intelligence com community in IG was key in getting the Ukraine whistleblowers report out into the public and to Congress. If he hadn't had a, the spine that he has, we might never have known that. And by the way, let's not forget that on Bill Barr's rap sheet that he tried to silence and keep the Ukraine whistleblower complaint from ever going to Congress. Um, so IGs play an important role in government, but I also don't want people to, they're not a cure-all um, in that there's a, first of all, there's a natural tension between IGs and your, your, your agency heads. That's supposed to be there because look, imagine you're the secretary of labor, let's say, well, you have an IG on the next, you know, down the hall or the next floor from you. And all he's looking to do, his job is to identify waste, fraud, abuse in your agency. There's natural tension there. The other thing is, as a practical matter, it's, it's hard for a young line prosecutor like I was to file a complaint with the IG. I mean, Bill Barr said during the whole SDNY dust up a couple weeks ago when he was trying to cover his tracks, he said, oh, and by the way, everyone, I encourage you if you see abuses to go to the, go to the IG. I mean, I put myself back in that situation, 31 years old in my second year at the U.S. Attorney's Office, like, God almighty, I, the, the chances of me picking up the phone and calling DC and saying, I'd like to speak to someone in the IG's office, it just wouldn't have happened. I mean, I'm a pretty courageous person, but that is institutionally really hard to do. Um, and so IG's are important and, and, and it's good that we have them, but we shouldn't look at them as, as sort of fail safes um, because there are institutional tensions that that sort of put a cap on how much they can do. But look, yeah, the DOJ IG is, is another important check on, on Bill Barr and, and any agency head. It, it's sort of amazing. I mean, what you're saying shows the courage of Zelensky and yeah. Elias, who are current employees of the Department of Justice speaking out saying, there has been manipulation of cases, there's been political pressure. That's something really remarkable. And going back to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who, yep you know, took the chance and has suffered the consequences. Yeah. Uh, my state senator, um, Tammy Duckworth, has uh, put in a bill that would say, no one can be promoted unless Vinman is promoted from lieutenant colonel to colonel. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty, pretty gutsy of her too. Um, yeah. I, you know, it probably won't pass the Senate because we have total gridlock uh, with the Republicans right. voting against everything. But, um, you also, I, I, a couple things you've said have spurred me to ask questions. One is sure. uh, a little bit more about Berman, which caused me whiplash, because as you point out, first it was the announcement by Barr that he has resigned and the attorney general from New Jersey was going to take over because he was told that Berman had resigned. And then Berman, again, in a gutsy move says, excuse me, but I did not resign and I don't intend to resign. And then you have a letter from Barr saying, I've asked the president to fire you and he has done so. And then the president says, uh, no, I didn't. That's his job. It's not mine. I have nothing to do with this. 
So I'm going like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, right, no. Right. And mm -hmm. then ultimately, uh, what seems to be a negotiated settlement is that Berman's deputy is going to take over and uh, carry on the legacy of the Southern District of New York or the ongoing investigations. Um, but I'm, I'm, and I'm just want people to understand the power of the president to actually fire anybody he wants who's the U.S. attorney, whether um, we ended up better off because Berman refused to resign and we got um, his deputy instead of the U.S. attorney from New Jersey as a temporary person, and then comment on the fact that Clayton, who is the head of the SEC, was going to get trial experience by being appointed yes. to be the U.S. attorney. Instead of coming there as an experienced litigator, mm. he said, I want to move back to New York and I'd like to get litigation experience. I think it would help me in my private practice. So uh, make me the U.S. attorney so I can get some trial practice. What oh, do you think God. about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm holding my head here um, <laughs> at, the, at the Jay Clayton thing. They should have made him do a summer internship first or something. <laughs> um, so... I think that Jeffrey Berman, by resisting in the way he did, accomplished two really important things. First, exposure, right? He shined a light. I, th I assume when Barr lied and said, this guy's stepping down, he was hoping that Berman would just be like, I guess I'm just going to, I'm not going to stir the pot. And I mean, to tell such an audacious lie in such a public manner, but good for Berman. He called it out and he showed us that yet again, Bill Barr lied to the public and that this is essentially a politically driven coup. And so I give Berman a lot of credit for that. And, and Berman will be testifying in Congress soon. That'll be interesting to see what yeah. he says. The other thing he did though was he, was he protected the turf, the SDNY's turf. And the SDNY is famously independent. Um, they call you know, the sovereign district of New York is a joke, Victor. That's what people count as a joke when you get to be old like us. Um, <laughs> like lawyer but, jokes. <laughs> yeah, lawyer jokes, exactly. It's not really an age thing. But because because this SDNY is so independent, and and we are, I mean, we were. I guess I can say this. The only time Pre Barrera, who was my boss and a good friend, really got mad at me was early on in his in his first year or so there. We had a meeting coming up with some, I won't say who, but big shots at SDNY from DOJ were coming up, and I said something like, "Well, our bosses are coming up," and Pre just looked at me and he said. Main justice is not your boss, and they are not my boss. And I was like, you're right, I know, I know. But, um, <laughs> but that said, SDNY is part of, of the Justice Department. And, but we find it really important at SDNY that that job be held by someone who's A, qualified, and B, preferably an insider, preferably someone, almost everybody in the history, um, recent history of SDNY who's been U.S. attorney has come up through that office. The actual the actual exception is Robert Morgenthau, but of course he was a legendary DA across the street uh, in Manhattan, so he gets he's okay, he gets a pass. Um, but by keep so the U.S. Attorney from New Jersey, and I should say he's a personal friend of mine, so let me disclose that he's really good, and he's a straight shooter, and I don't have any concerns that he would have shut down cases or done anything crooked. As you said, Jill, it's been publicly reported that he was misled. He was told Berman's going voluntarily. And that's why he agreed. So, um, of course, making someone that the U.S. attorney for both New Jersey and Southern District is utterly impossible. I mean, they were setting him up to fail. It's hard enough. It's almost impossible to be a U.S. attorney for one district, never mind two of the biggest and, and most and busiest in the country. But, but Jay Clayton, oh my goodness, how offensive, how ridiculous this notion who Victor, no offense, but you have the same amount of prosecutorial experience as Jake, as Jake Clayton. <laughs> and so do all your friends from, from, from college and high school. Um, to, to, to even entertain the notion of putting somebody who's never spent a day as a prosecutor in charge of the SDNY, and I've said before, it's like making me Surgeon General of the United States. Like I have zero qualifications to do that job. And why they would want to put him in, it, it either... You want to sort of disable the office by putting someone completely inexperienced at the top and or they wanted someone who they felt like would be a company player. And, and again, I don't think Jay Clayton was going to go in there and Bill Barr was going to come in and they were going to start, you know, putting files in the shredder. It wasn't going to be like in the movies. All they have to do is say, eh, I, I don't know, that's a borderline case. Reasonable minds can disagree. We disagree. No, no go. That would, that would be all it would take to really put a lid on. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. The Michael Cohen case, okay? 
which Barr, again, we talked about, reportedly tried to get the SDNY to revisit. Now, this happened before Bill Barr was there. This happened during Jeff Sessions' watch when Sessions was recused. And actually, Berman was recused, too, from the SDNY. So you had the people who were running the case from SDNY. Those are colleagues, former colleagues of mine, who are real kick-butt prosecutors, okay? When they did the sentencing memo on Michael Cohen, they put a, a line in there saying something like, Michael Cohen committed these acts, the, the campaign finance violations, the hush money payments, um, for and at the direction of individual one, okay? Everybody in the world knew that, wow, they just directly implicated the president. If that happened now, I'm, I am fairly confident what would have happened is Bill Barr would have said, before you submit anything in this case, we need to see it. You need to send it down to Maine Justice. And Bill Barr or one of his enablers would have saw that sentence and said, pick that out. No, not appropriate. Um, he's not a charged person. We don't throw shade at people who aren't charged. It comes out of the memo. And nobody would have known. And that's the kind of subtle little thing that can be done that makes a big difference. And by the way, sorry, while I'm on my rant, I want to point out that there was a, a moment in time recently when the top, I think it was five officials at DOJ had a grand total of zero trials they ever prosecuted, zero cases they ever prosecuted on the wow. line level. Okay, Bill Barr had been AG before, but he, but he had never been a line level prosecutor, prosecuted a case. The Deputy Attorney General, Jeffrey Rosen, I wrote a piece about this, so I looked at his bio on the DOJ website. It's hilarious. It's, it's apologetic. It says, although DAG Rosen has never worked in the criminal field, he has extensive other experience. Um, the Associate Attorney General, Blanken on the name, had zero criminal experience. The Chief of the Criminal Division, it has the word criminal right in the title, Benchkowski, had never had any criminal experience. And the Solicitor General, who handles the Supreme Court cases, Noel Francisco, very, very much a brilliant guy. All of them have wonderful resumes. But all of them have great credentials. But you take the five of them combined, never did a day as a line prosecutor. And I, I say that in part because I like to laugh about that ridiculous fact. But it matters because when you are a, a, a real prosecutor and you're someone who's come up through the system and been trained properly, you get a certain amount of reps and you build your instincts for what's right and what's wrong. What are the things you do and what are the things you just don't do? And I think a real prosecutor, take the Michael Flynn case, would have been able to look at that and go, you just don't do this. Once, DO, once you've allowed DOJ to go on record, which, which the DOJ did, and argue for, you know, for this position, you don't come in and kneecap your own prosecutor. Same thing with Roger Stone, right? That's just things you don't do. It's like in sports, like baseball has all these rules, but they have a lot of unwritten rules too. Some of them are stupid, but a lot of them are good. And if you didn't come up through the system, you would never know those. And I think that's part of the reason we're seeing Barr act in such, in such a uh, really a, an unusual and indefensible way. It's interesting because some of this happened also during Watergate, where you had Although in one case, it was with a very experienced person, my first boss, who was the head of the organized crime section, because you and I share that background, yeah. um, Henry Peterson got promoted to be the head of the criminal division. Oh. And he got overwhelmed, I believe, by the power of the presidency and did some things, including turning over information to uh, John Dean, the president's White House counsel, that no... I, I know that if he had been head of the organized crime section, he would have thought and gone, I can't do that. That's completely improper. I can't share information like that. Yeah. But he, you know, sometimes the power of the presidency does make even experienced people, let alone the people that you're mentioning who have zero experience. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But so that yeah. takes us to a question of, so what do we do? I'm, let's assume that, um, uh, Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, and he appoints a new attorney general. What does that attorney general do in terms of resurrecting the, um, the, the attitudes and the, um, the, the, the righteousness of prosecutors and, and civil? I mean, because antitrust is not always, you know, it, it, it was also infecting the antitrust decisions. Right. Um, what, what does the attorney general do? What are the first couple of things that they have to do? Um, and should we be considering having uh, a split in the attorney general advising on policy and being a cabinet member 
and having a separate person who oversees decisions about prosecutions and specific cases. There's been some talk about legislation to do that to avoid this problem. Um, so I'd like to hear what you think could be done, should be done, yeah. whether that's a good idea, whether there are other ideas that could uh, help us restore equal justice within the Department of Justice. Right, that's a great question. So I think the first thing that a new attorney general, and by the way, whether whether Biden wins or Trump wins, whoever replaces Bill Barr, Republican or Democrat, needs to do, and it'll be interesting to see if Trump wins, does, does Barr stay? I'm sure Trump will desperately be begging him to stay, um, but he's getting up there and he's kind of done his, you know, done his thing. Um, the first thing attorney general should do, and hopefully this will be somebody who has real DOJ experience because it will lend credibility, is go into the great hall of the Justice Department and call an all hands meeting and have the TV cameras on and say, I'm going to do this job the way it was meant to be done, the way my predecessors, most of them, not this last guy, but most of them have done the job. I'm going to do this job without regard to politics, without fear or favor to who's in the White House. I will, you know, I am going to restore credibility and independence to the Justice Department, and then you have to walk that talk. But I think it's important on day one that you send a signal, not a signal, a, an explicit message to the, the women and men who work at the Justice Department that what just happened is not acceptable. And I'm going to, I, I will, I will never, it sounds like a ridiculous thing for the AG to say, but I will never lie to you or the public. And I will not play politics. We will not play politics. We will do as Preet used to say to us, we will do the right things in the right way for the right reasons all the time. Um, I think that's phase one. I don't know about legislation. I mean, I think we want to be careful of overcorrecting because the model of the AG worked pretty well, not perfectly, but pretty well for hundreds of years. Um, you know, John Mitchell's a, a, an example of not working out well. But I think one thing that's important to know is there's no law on the books, nor would any such law really be enforceable, saying DOJ shall be non-political. Um, I don't know how you'd ever enforce that or, or interpret that. And a lot of government service comes down to just the quality of the people who do these jobs and the strength of the institutions themselves. And I think we'll see the institutions themselves survive. I think we are at a low point with, certainly within DOJ, of the, the quality and integrity of the people who are running the place. But by and large, I think that's the determining factor. And I don't know how, how much of a difference splitting it up through legislation would make or, or if that's even necessarily a good thing in the long run. Can I tell you one quick Watergate story, Joe, though? Because sure, you I'd that. love to hear it. Um, a couple months ago, I was, I, I was down at the CNN Bureau in Washington, D.C., and I was, there was, you know, how these green rooms get, right. and John Dean was in the green room, and so was Carl Bernstein, and both people who I've been lucky to get to know, and they're both really uh, interesting people and important figures in our history, and it was kind of late, and I was dark out, and they walked out, and we all, the three of us walked out together, me, John Dean, and Carl Bernstein. And if you've ever been to CNN DC, it's right next to Union Station. There's kind of a little public plaza there. And there was a guy waiting who must have seen them both be on TV recently. And he had copies of the Washington Post saying Nixon oh. resigns, you know, from the actual historic oh. date. And he runs up to the three of us and he goes, you know, Mr. Bernstein, Mr. Dean, will you sign this? And, and they were nice about it and they signed it. And I just said to the guy, I said, just by the way, I'm not Bob Woodward. <laughs> um, I said you could have had a perfect three for three there, but you, you got the two of them. Um, anyway, that was my uh, Watergate moment. Yeah, it's it's so interesting, and I've yeah. gotten to know John. Yeah. After Watergate, during Watergate, he was like a computer in the days yeah. before computers. Mm -hmm. He was someone who answered our questions, gave us facts, and we were on a panel. Maybe, oh gosh, it's probably ten years ago now. Yeah. Um, and it was the first time that I had had lunch with him and said, how are you? How did right. you go? And actually <laughs> right. had a personal conversation and found out, you know, that we both, uh, he had lived in Evanston, my hometown. Oh, wow. and, I mean, it was just, it was an amazing experience. And I value his friendship and his, um, his smarts. We always knew he was brilliant. Um, yeah. He was an extraordinary witness. Um, mm -hmm. Phenomenal. So, and I also yeah. got to meet Woodward and Bernstein after, um, <laughs> only recently 
got some advice in writing the book from Bob Woodward, who said, yeah. stop calling people on the phone. They'll hang up on you. If you go to their door, it's much harder to slam the door. In your <laughs> so I followed that his is, advice and got the door slammed in my face. So, that's, a, wow. that's, that's great advice. It, Listen, it didn't work so well. If anyone has the, 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 you know, the credibility and the background to give that mm -hmm. advice, it's Bob Woodward. Yeah, John, John Dean is an extraordinary guy. And look, I, wish, I do wish we had, look, John Dean's not a perfect person and he did things that he shouldn't have done and he'll be the first to tell you that, but, but he came forward and he came forward in a timely manner, looking at you, John Bolton and others. Um, and he came forward- Don McGann. Don McGann, yeah. many others, right? And I think we'll learn about more once this administration is out of power, whether it's in 2021 or 2025, but he came forward and he did it um, when it was hard to do and in a way that made a difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess like the last question to make this conversation relevant to um, younger generations, yeah. lastly is, so with the recent protests in the aftermath of the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and other black men and women, we've seen a wave of protests and calls for policy change. For, so for our younger generation out there listening today, can you discuss why it's not just protesting and policymaking that are important, but why it's so critical that we ensure an independent and apolitical Department of Justice in this fight for racial justice? Yeah, so that, that's a great question, Victor. Um, I think it's a, it's a really encouraging thing to see how active and, and involved young people are nowadays. I teach at a college, mm -hmm. Rutgers, and, and my students are 19 to, through 22, and they're incredibly engaged, and it's a great thing. Um, and I encourage young people to remain engaged. But And DOJ is really, to me, the pillar of, of that. Do we have faith in our systems? Look, change is slow. I mean, I'm all for people pushing the pace and saying, we need change now, because that's the only way you're ever going to get things done. But ultimately, change takes time. And, and I think people look to the Justice Department, and let me say prosecutors in general, not just the Justice Department. I mean, there tends to be this focus on the feds because the feds are sort of the, the biggest and the glamorous. Um, but I spent five years after my DOJ uh, time, I was in charge of the New Jersey Attorney General's Criminal Division, including mm -hmm. all the county prosecutors. I mean, there's a lot of progress to be made, a lot of re important reform, but we spent a ton of time on police reform before this. Um, at the local levels. And it's so important that people have faith in our police and prosecutors um, because first of all, let's start with this. The most important, the first thing people look for when we have these horrible cases like George Floyd is justice. I mean, the most important thing that's gonna happen in George Floyd's case is that trial. And look, I'm of the opinion that those charges are righteous and well-founded and should result in convictions. Trials are inherently unpredictable. But it's very important that people feel like prosecutors are fighting for justice and getting justice in these horrible cases that happen. It's also important that people have faith in our institutions, that our police are there to, to truly protect and serve. It, 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 it's you know the guardian mentality, not the occupier mentality, we say. Um, and that prosecutors are going to do the right thing and, and make the difficult call and, and call things down the middle. So. Um, to me, those are both foundational things. I think police and prosecutors are sort of the foundational point for two people have faith in our systems, the integrity of, of our systems, and uh, look, the Department of Justice. I mean, the, the word justice is right there right, in the right. title. So look, it, it, to me, it's, it's wonderful to see people so engaged, so, so energized, and I hope that that energy and momentum um, carry on. There does seem to be a real longer term sort of commitment here by people in power and by just interested citizens to, to make things better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and we're going to do another podcast that's going to focus even more on the police reform. And we just yes. had a conversation with Mimi Roca, who sure. is likely to be the new DA of Westchester County. Uh, the, yeah. the results, is she, first of all, it's, she only won the primary, but um, we're waiting for the mail-in ballots to be counted, but her lead seems insurmountable. Yeah. And yeah. we talked a little bit about what SDA she can do uh, in terms of sexual assault, in terms of police reform. So yeah. it, it's really exciting. So one, one final last question for you, um, a question that is the kind that you get in an interview and you go, God, I hate that question. <laughs> but hopefully, you know, you'll have something to say, which is, is there anything that we didn't ask that you feel would be a really important thing for people to know right now? So I want to pick up, I, I, I love that question. I want to pick up where you left off uh, with our mutual friend, Mimi Roca. So, and I, because I want to, I want to use Mimi as an example, hopefully to inspire people, Victor, of your 
generation. Um, Mimi was has always been a mentor to me. She was my supervisor at the SDNY. Oh. Uh, was a as great a supervisor as you would imagine she would be. Um, did everything right as a prosecutor. Was just you know took care of all of her her uh, her, her kids. Mm -hmm. I guess whatever we were, um, and taught us well. And um, I've stayed close with her. And she made a really courageous decision. I don't know about six months ago to give this a shot because she was onto a very successful career as a TV commentator with MSNBC. And she took a huge risk. And she said, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring and I'm gonna run for DA in Westchester County where she lives right outside of New York. <clears throat> and this was a huge gamble. I mean, I encouraged her to do it. A lot of people did, yeah. but she challenged an established democratic incumbent, a guy who held office for several years he was very much entrenched. I'm sure he never even considered the possibility of a primary challenger. And she took, she undertook this incredibly difficult uphill climb. And Jill, you're right. And I talked to Mimi and I'm not gonna, we're not allowed to pop the champagne yet because she's right, right that all the absentee ballots need to be counted. But mm -hmm. if you look at the, the, the ballots that have already come in, all the in-person ballots. I mean, she kicked this guy's ass. I mean, I mean, yeah. it's like 68 to 32 or right. something. And wow. if you look town by town, she won every single town in Westchester County. And I think she's going to win the general. I think she's a pretty safe bet. And she will be the next DA of Westchester County. And you have such enormous power there. I know it's not as sexy, for lack of a better term, as being a U.S. attorney. But man, you could do so much as a county prosecutor, as a DA, even as a, a, a low level, like I was, line prosecutor, you can make a real difference. And she's gonna hold this position and you see more and more people doing this, willing to challenge incumbents, mm -hmm. willing to give a run. You see, I mean, there's rumors now that your colleague, Maya Wiley, who's a friend of mine, yes. may run for uh, mayor of New York. And Maya, if you're listening, do it. We need you, yes, please. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, and um, yes. Definitely. Right, right. And so, Victor, what I would say to people of your generation is we, you know, you all, this administration has been in power since you were 14 or something. And so this is sort of what you've grown up with, but no, like I said in the beginning, what we're seeing, and I'll, I'll focus my remarks on Bill Barr, are, are not, it's not normal and it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be this way. And as discouraging as it can be to see an attorney general doing the things that Bill Barr has done, don't let that dissuade you. Go into the law, go into po political science, go into media. You can make a huge difference doing this. And it's, I'll tell you the other secret of it is you'll have a lot more satisfying job than, than your friends who go, your friends from UCLA who go work on Wall Street or whatever, right? Some of them will do that, but their worst day will, will, will be, you know, their best day will be worse than your worst day, right? Am I saying that right? Yeah, your worst day will be better than their best day if you yes. become a prosecutor mm -hmm. you go into any, or a public defender or any kind of public service. So if you're yeah. listening to this podcast, you're probably interested in this stuff, do it. Do it. Go to law school, go into politics, go into media. Mm -hmm. You can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, I think there's a real calling for that now, especially with um, the recent aftermath of George Floyd and um, the devastating losses of black men and women. So, I mean, yep. thank you so much, Ellie, for joining this really informative and important discussion. Um, Jill and I are so appreciative and we're so glad that we were able to talk on this subject matter. So, um, we hope that you listening also enjoyed this episode and be sure to follow us on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. And send us, a, send us your suggestions via Jill's Twitter, myself, or our new website, intergenpolitics.wixsite slash my site. So thank you so much. Have a good 4th of July weekend. And thank you again, Ellie. Thanks, Ellie, you. you were a fabulous guest. And we hope you'll mm -hmm. come back and talk to us again because it was really a total delight. And I yeah. share your enthusiasm for both Mimi and Maya and <laughs> public service. Yeah. I've spent... I'd say most of my career uh, in public, I've gone into private, I've been in private practice a couple of times. Um, it was never as much fun as being in government yeah. service. And I've done <laughs> it at both, um, I was on an advisory committee to our state's attorney, which is the equivalent of a DA. Uh, I was in the attorney general's office of Illinois. So I've done the state level and I've done the federal and they are all sensational. Uh, yeah. It's been a wonderful experience. So Absolutely. I encourage everybody to do that. And also you mentioned something else about Mimi being your mentor. And I just wanna to say to all the younger people listening, find a mentor. It is yeah. really important. Um, I was blessed with having Chuck Ruff as my mentor at the oh. Department of Justice. 
Uh, Chuck is maybe the smartest lawyer I've ever known. Um, and I would not be the lawyer I am today if it hadn't been for him and his guidance. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I, in those days when we didn't have computers, if I got a tough thing in the middle of a trial, I'd say, I need a recess, Your Honor. And I'd run to the phone and I'd call Chuck <laughs> and he would give me the answer. Um, but he, he really helped me through. Um, so look for a mentor. It's really an important thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thanks both. Right. Uh, both Thank you. you very much. Thank really you. See you Thank soon. You. Yep.